I'm Michael Dunn, and you're listening to Oregon Rainmakers from KLCC Studios. My guest today is John Barnum, Executive Director for Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County. A longtime private sector leader, Barnum utilizes those business and management skills to help run this affordable housing nonprofit and create generational opportunities for families throughout the region. John Barnum, the Executive Director for Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County, welcome. Thank you very much. Why don't you take us back to uh, take us through the sort of the journey of your career and, and how you got to become the executive director for Habitat for Humanity? Wow, yeah, that's uh, um, for me, my life's arc has been unusual. I've held a lot of different uh, jobs over the years, many of them in the, in the for-profit sector. Uh, many of those jobs um, were as a manager uh, running organizations and helping to bring organizations along on their paths to being successful. Um, and uh, as time passed, I was managing a company and uh, I had the opportunity to work in, in a nonprofit to uh, be, be an, uh, on their board of directors. I was invited to, be, to join a board. I'd never done that before and it was really interesting to me. And that was about 20 plus years ago when I first did that. I got involved then at that point working with nonprofits in addition to still working in the for-profit sector. And while I was doing that, um, I realized that my heart was more with the nonprofit sector than it was with the for-profit. And so I started switching uh, up how I was focusing on and who I was trying to help at that time. So um, I went back to school um, I graduated when I was 50. So I tell people my joke there is that I, I was on a 32-year educational program. It took me a few years to get my degree, but I did get it, and it was in uh, business management and accounting. Okay. And that was really critical because one of the issues I found in working in the, in the nonprofit sector is the amount of accounting that it's critical to the growth of the nonprofit and to managing their resources effectively. So I started doing more of that, and I did some work eventually as a, as a consultant. Uh, I have a technology background, too, so I was doing technology and accounting and, su- and support with some other nonprofits locally. And then what I did was uh, I had the opportunity to work for another nonprofit as their director of finance, and I was there for seven years. And okay. right after that point, um, I, they were more on an international basis. Their work was more on an international basis. And I saw an opportunity to work locally with the Habitat for Humanity Central Lane. And for me, that really spoke to me because it was local. It was involved with uh, people here in in Lane County. And so uh, I applied for that job. Um, I got interviewed for it with the other candidates. And I was the person who came out on top in the interview process. And that was in September of uh, 2021 when I came to work for Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane. Okay. Um, I've often heard, you know, people talk about the, the sort of compare and contrast the for-profit world and the non-profit world. And I'd love to sort of get your, you've, you've lived, you've had a, a foot in each. And, and I, I wonder, you know, what were some of the things perhaps that you learned or experienced in the for-profit world that translated very well to nonprofit leadership? Well, in the leadership aspect, um, 
what you what you end up doing is they're, they're almost identical. I mean, we have to meet all of the same laws and requirements between the two uh, types of organizations. And sometimes people forget that, you know, just because you have volunteers or you have staff, uh, you know, it's like, no, you still have to be paid for the time you work if you're an employee. No volunteers, you can't have them doing things that are dangerous, you know. So you, um, you do have to be particularly mindful as you work between the two organizations. I think the things that I found that were super similar was, um, was when I talked to people about how do you manage the revenue was to remind people that while you say nonprofit, that doesn't mean no profit. <laughs> <laughs> you still need money to pay the rent. You still need money to pay the utilities. You know, you just don't get those things for free. We, even as Habitat, we still pay rent for our building. We still pay for the electricity. We still pay for the, uh, the trash pickup. All of those things have a cost, and we still pay for those things. I try to encourage the organizations that I am paying to to remind them that you're working with a nonprofit, and I like to think of you as a partner in our business. And so are there ways that we can increase the relationship between the two of us? And that, that's something I look for. So those are some of the differences. In, a, in the for-profit, you're always trying to minimize your cost as much as possible. In the not-for-profit, you're trying to also minimize the cost, but what you're really trying to focus on is your mission statement. Sure. And that's the critical difference there for a nonprofit. Nonprofits are mission, absolutely mission-driven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in talking to many nonprofit leaders, you know, one of the things I think they love to dispel is this idea that, yes, even though we are designated as a nonprofit, we still are a business and and it's just as important if in, in, the, in the for-profit world where you're, you know, profit-driven, mission-driven still means that you are a, a, a business and, and a lot of the, the discipline, in fact, sometimes even more discipline needs to fall around that. Right, right. And, and the other thing is, is that, you know, you want people who are inside the organization to be uh, involved in the mission, to honor the mission, to respect the people who you're serving your mission to. And uh, so you really try hard to make sure that your focus is your mission. And our focus as the mission at Habitat is to build homes. And those homes are going to be for low-income families. And that's what we're really striving to focus on is how do we do that? How do we meet the mission for our organization? And how do we meet the mission for our community locally? And, and I'm, I'm going to pick up on that because as you, as you were talking about your career, you, you were in the for-profit world and then you, you, you made the conscious choice to transition to the nonprofit world. And so uh, sort of two questions, one more 30,000 foot view and one closer to home is what was it specifically about transitioning to the nonprofit world that most attracted you? And then of course, diving down further, what was it about Habitat that you said, this is the organization for me? Well, those are good questions. And, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we, we, as we think about that type of thing, you, you reflect back on your life and you think, you know, at what point was I grow, in growing up, what, at what point did I realize that I needed to think of others before myself? And honestly, you know, many people will say this to, to about their lives. I believe my mother was very instrumental in reminding me 
to uh, be aware of the advantages I've had and how can I use those advantages I've had to help others and what does that look like? She's passed away many years ago, but it was terribly important to me in my life to do that. And then I believe the next part of that question was... About habitat specifically. Habitat specifically. You know, um, one of the other places I was at, we were working with people who, uh, well, one of them was working with people with disabilities, and then another place was working with uh, people in disadvantaged positions. And I have found, again, uh, when the habitat came up as a possibility locally, and I thought, wow, I have so many things that I have done career-wise and uh, in my background that were nice fits to what Habitat is trying to do in terms of its development of properties locally. And I just believed that those things would match well. And uh, in this past 16 months, that's really proven to be correct, that in the situation we're at, especially like in our restore, the, the merchandise coming in, how I've been involved in recycling of other materials, I've done home remodeling, I've done uh, construction. So I've had this background that nicely matched what we're already doing. So I didn't have to learn that side of it. And then, I, like I said, I bring to this organization my accounting skills and my uh, finance background. So that's a good fit for me. And it has, in the last year and a half, it's been a good fit emotionally for me. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. When you applied for the position, went through the inter- interview process, you know, and, and, and you've answered this to some degree about some of your background and how it, how it translated well. But it, as you were just talking, I'm thinking, wow, you know, uh, you had so much experience in both sourcing materials, but also putting them together to build homes. It, it must have been gratifying when you landed the job to say, okay, I've got a lot of experience that can translate directly. Um, were there, say, the first month or two, were there any surprises where you're like, boy, I tell you what, this, this, this was the biggest surprise of, 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 of being the executive director? Yeah, that's a great question, too, because I think um, you don't realize how complicated a Habitat affiliate is. Habitat is, uh, when we think of Habitat for Humanity, many people think of this, you know, organization, that is, it's this gigantic organization, which it is, but it's Habitat for Humanity International located in Georgia, and they are the ones who, who have, they don't, I don't want to call it sponsors, but they approve the affiliate operations. In Oregon, there are about 24 affiliate operations. Portland, for example, is a very large affiliate, and uh, that's part of the reason that I wanted to be on the air here was they were on the air recently, uh, I think it was uh, OPB, and mm-hmm. They had done a broadcast with Steve Mezzanetti, and Steve was talking about the Portland affiliate and, and the things that had come to them. And the, we didn't want people Steve to, is the executive director. He's the, yeah, okay. Steve Mezzanetti is the executive director in Portland. We didn't want people to be confused about the fact that, yes, Portland received a very large donation through McKinsey, um, McKinsey Scott, who is uh, the former wife of Jeff Bezos. Exactly. And they, they received like an $8 million award. That's Portland. That's not Eugene. And uh, that's not our service area, which is, you know, Springfield, Eugene, Cottage Grove, and some of the surrounding community. We didn't receive that. And that was just to them. We are all separate affiliates and we all are building our own 
um, to meet our individual needs in our individual communities. Okay. Well, let's take our first break. When we come back, let's delve into that of what uh, Habitat of Central Lane is all about, what you do and, 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 and the services you deliver. We're going to take our first break. We're talking with John Barnum. He is the executive director for Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County. I'm Barbara Dellenbach, host of KLCC's Oregon Grapevine. On the newest edition, Kate Brown, Oregon's former governor, says she will miss the camaraderie of working with other states' governors. We all have to put politics aside to do what is best for our people. As I watch my colleagues in Idaho and Wyoming, I don't always agree with them, but I know they're working to put the people of their state in the best position possible. Former Oregon Governor Kate Brown on Oregon Grapevine at klcc.org. And we're back talking with uh, John Barnum. He is the Executive Director for Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County. So so, so uh, let's pick up where we were, we were we, where we left off. Talk about running Habitat for Humanity. Talk about the organization. Talk about your staffing, you know, all, all the things that make up the organization. Great. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that you'd asked me was, was there any surprises? And I would tell you that for, for me, if, if I was talking to anybody coming in to run an organization like this, I would definitely encourage them to uh, understand mortgages hmm. more. We, as an organization, we carry the mortgages for the homes that we are helping people purchase. And that's a very important distinction for us because... We have to meet all of the same federal mortgage requirements that everybody has to meet to do those things. And uh, so it's, it's very involved in that regard. When I first started at Habitat, and this is, um, you know, I had done, I was in the interview process, I was meeting the staff, I was meeting the board of directors, and uh, my initial thought was, wow, these are genuinely nice people. <laughs> and it was kind of a surprise because they were really just the nicest people you could imagine. Um, and when I, when I started there um, and meeting the individuals and, and the tasks they were performing, I was like, not only are they nice, they're very competent. They, mm. they really know what they're doing in their individual positions. So my job was to not mess it up. <laughs> my initial job, don't mess it up because it's actually, you know, it's doing well. And uh, so as I got involved with everybody, it was about how you know, what are areas that you see that you could make improvements in and how can we help you do that? What does it look like? What is it, what do you imagine it to be? And then working with them to do that. When I started there, we had about uh, 10, 11 staff members working on a, either a full-time or part-time basis. We were coming out of COVID. We were uh, still running store hours limited uh, for the days that we were open. And uh, we still kept our offices by appointment only. So this is, you're still at the tail end of COVID. We're still doing masking. We're still trying to be careful. Everybody's leaning into that. And as time changes, you know, as we move along and we start coming out of, or we believe we're coming out of the COVID issues, um, we start expanding again. So we have expanded our hours now at our ReStore. We are open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday from 11 to 6, which is an expansion of our hours, which is great because we use that money to help our building. Sure. Well, let's 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 even get kind of uh, I want to I want to break it down into the piece parts. Explain what your staff does. Take us through okay. as you said the mission is you build homes. 
Who do you build them for? How does that happen? And then I want you to talk about the ReStore as well, because I think that that uh, it's my belief people really know at least at a very high level, the brand that is Habitat for Humanity, but may not understand exactly how it works. Take us through that puzzle, if you will. Okay, so our staff is built around um, individuals who are involved with doing particular jobs. So we have a program, uh, the program manager who handles the calls, intake calls, especially for um, minor home repairs that we're doing. The actual home process, home ownership process, is dependent upon building homes. So you don't have homeowners in the process all the time unless you're building homes, which we are now doing. So then we have that person is involved in doing that. We have another person who is involved in in community outreach and volunteer development. And that person is bringing people in to do the projects associated with either building homes or doing property cleanups, working in the restore. Then, of course, we have a person who's involved in our marketing and development. They're helping to raise the money and meet the community. We have a person involved in our accounting department. So it's a pretty small administrative staff. That is actually it. Hmm. And then we have a building department. And our building department consists of a, a gentleman who is our contractor. He's a paid staff member, and he's a licensed contractor. So he can he can build the homes for us and meet all the requirements that are that we have to for actually building. And he also heads up the minor home repairs. So again, it's all about doing these projects well and meeting all the code requirements that we have to meet because there's a bunch of them. Sure. And then it's the store staff. And that's really where we have, uh, we have a store director and then he has staff under him to run the store. So, so, so take me through, I apologize if this is overly simplistic, but, but, but I think it, it helps set, set the stage. How do you marry up a person who needs a home with an actual home? How does that process happen? So we will, as we know, we're nearing completion or we're starting on a home project and we know we're going to be building over a period of time. So it takes, say, it takes nine to 12 months to build a home. We open our process and we take in prospective homeowners, and they go through a vetting process. They have to be in the 40 to 80% area median income. We have to confirm those incomes. We go through a process of, of confirmation that they meet the, the um, minimum income requirements and that they are not overextended in their credit so that they will have the ability to pay a mortgage. Okay. And then the furthermore, then we go in and we review their current home ownership or their living, where they're living. If they're living in an apartment that's substandard, if they're living in crowded in an apartment, that will raise their need a little bit more. And, and then we start this process. It takes probably, um, we open the process. It, it might be open for about 30 days to accept home applications. And then at the end of that time, we're taking that down to however many homes we're gonna have available. So currently, for example, we're going to be in a cycle of having four homes available. So we will look for four families to enter the program process. And they will enter that process. They will go through training classes. They will go through development on financial skills. They'll learn budgeting. These are all critical things for them to know. They've probably never been a homeowner. Mm-hmm. They'll learn homeowner ma- homeownership maintenance. 
because we will teach them how to do that. And then they will go a little further in their training. We will help them save money towards their, it's not a down payment, but it's closing costs. We, so we help teach them how to save towards closing costs. And then we teach them about the mortgages that they're going to be signing. So there's a process and they have to be involved in building their house as well. That's the sweat equity portion. So they'll need to get a hundred hours on the actual build site in addition to a hundred hours of completing the other requirements. And that's all included in their sweat equity portion. That's for a single person for a two family or a two adults in the household, there would be 250 hours. So we've lowered the amount of hours a little bit, but we've also shortened the amount of time that they get all that in. The goal is to try and move people into homes as quickly as we can. We're not emergency housing. Okay. So it does take time to get the home built. We're not tiny homes, so we're not building them that quickly. Sure, sure. And then, and, and then the ReStore, talk about that and, and how that fits in. So it sounds like you, you almost have this nonprofit, and then you've also built this sort of secondary business to help fund the overall organization. Do I have that right? Yeah, that would be, yeah. You're always having nonprofits who are looking for ways to help fund what they're doing and um, you know, to be self-sustaining. To not always have to go out and say, you know, we need X dollars. Will you donate X dollars? Because when you're building habitat homes, it's like we're doing a capital campaign every year to try and build homes. And, and honestly, that's very, very difficult. So the, the ReStore helps separate some of that out for us. We would love to get to the point where we could open a second ReStore, maybe in the Springfield area. That would be one of our goals because more stores will generate more revenue towards this and then also we try to make sure that the staffing that we do um, that we're paying above the minimum wage that we're trying to give benefits that we're you know we try to make it a good place to work for people and that it's it's it may not initially be a lifelong choice for somebody but after they're in and they're doing it and if, if it's meeting their needs then it can become that kind of thing the store itself though does contribute to our overhead cost covering that and towards the building. So when people shop there, they're actually helping to build the homes in the community. So that's a really, that's a big plus. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well, we're gonna take our second break. We're talking with John Barnum. He's the executive director for Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County. We'll be right back. If you're thinking of donating your car, I cannot encourage you more to go ahead and do it. The dividends are great. You'll feel good about yourself that what you did was so easy. It'll help your community by supporting these wonderful stations. How can you beat that? Get all the details at our website, klcc.org. And we're back talking with John Barnum. He is the executive director for Habitat for Humane, Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County. So, um, Boy, I tell you what, you know, obviously, I think it's impossible not to talk about our community and, and talk about the housing shortage, the housing crisis. Maybe give us an, a, a thumbnail sketch of how Habitat for Humanity fits into the current situation and, and ultimately, hopefully, towards a, a, a larger solution. Yeah, so that's uh, the housing crisis, the housing emergency is is not unique to our community. It's kind of all over the country. Frankly, it's probably all over the world. Mm. Um, the, as I mentioned before, we're not an emergency housing provider. We don't solve the problem 
quickly for people. Sure. But we are one of the steps in the process. Somebody who starts in uh, one of the safe sleep areas might progress up into a, a tiny home, might progress into a Section 8 housing type of situation. And um, maybe at that point they're looking for, they have their family together or they started a family by this point. They, they've met somebody, they, they have additional children to, to work with. It could be a senior. I mean, we have to meet all of the needs of the community that we're working with. But you have this situation as people are progressing where now it's their opportunity to step into home ownership. And how do they do that? And that's where we step in. And um, I would love to say that as a Habitat affiliate in, in Oregon that we're building, you know, 30 homes a year. We're not. Mm-hmm. We're not, for our community, we're not building at that level. Should we be? Maybe the community... I, th- I believe the community probably needs that level of support. Our goal is to try and increase where we've been to uh, hopefully targeting even 10 homes a year. So our current development is Fisher Village out in Springfield. And that development is consisting of six buildings that are actually tandem homes. And each of those then... A That's tandem, like a shared wall. Is shared, that it has a shared wall between them. And uh, they're two-story tandems. And so there's going to be the ability to put 12 families into that total complex. Why is it different for us this time than other times? Well, it's taken a long time to get to through the development, to get through the subdivision process, to get it ready to build on. Our goal now is to build them as quickly as we can with the resources we have available. We're very fortunate in the state that there are some programs available right now that help with funding housing construction costs, which we're tapping into. We're working on what is called permanent affordability, and we're working under the community land trust model. The goal there, again, is about creating affordability. One of the common misconceptions around Habitat for Humanity has to do with the idea that, well, they build affordable housing. And it's like, you know, housing costs what it costs to build, and property costs what it costs to acquire. I mean, those things are sort of fixed. You can't really change those things. So instead, what I like people to think of is Habitat for Humanity helps make housing affordable. Mm. So we work on making the, make, make the completed home affordable to the family that's going to move into it, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're, they're multi-layered mortgage documents. They're much more complicated than the standard document. Our goal is to meet that 40 to 80% area median income. And then within that, to not have the cost of, of home ownership ex- exceed 30% of their gross income. Hmm. So you get a number, and that's very similar to also to the very low income housing that's happening out there, especially around apartments. Um, our goal is to make these things affordable without having to do, to end up having to subsidize too much into the cost. If you build a single family unit on a single lot, you can end up having a very high subsidy cost on that lot. Okay. And so the, the, our goal is to, to try and lower that by building more densely. Okay. If, if an ultimate goal, as I, as I think you stated, is, is if you could wave the proverbial magic wand to be able to remove impediments so that you could build more homes, what might that look like? Are there, are there, are there potential changes in a municipal code or a funding model that would make your mission easier to try and complete. Yeah. So when you're thinking along that lines, they've actually done some of that with the middle housing code. And that was that, that 
raised some issues in terms of the community. Um, the community was looking at that going, well, wait a second, you know, you're going to be building more densely on in my neighborhood. And, you know, I've, I've had my neighborhood, I've had single family homes around my neighborhood for years and years and years. And it's like, well, within the city limits, near the resources that people need to be close to, it's important to try and build multifamily homes in those situations when you can. Am I talking giant apartment buildings or things like that? No. Talking smaller duplexes, triplexes, a fourplex, maybe a section of townhomes. We'd love to do a section of townhomes and we're trying to develop that here in the city of Eugene right now. Honestly, the city of Eugene has been very responsive to us. Springfield has been very responsive. Cottage Grove, Cottage Grove has been very responsive to how that looks in our habitat model as we try to step in there and meet the needs of the city as well as the people who are trying to move into those places. The next step is, is when we're doing this is to work with the neighborhoods to make sure that they understand something that's super critical. And when I talk to people about that, somebody who is low income, they need to, they need to lower, um, the, the individuals in the neighborhood need to take off those, those tinted glasses they wear that look at that and say, well, they're just poor people. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, they're just, they're just low income. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that has nothing to do with that. They care as much about their home and their living arrangement as anybody. And they have the, they just need the same opportunity as everybody has sure. to have home ownership as a possibility. Well, and, and I imagine, you know, <laughs> I'm a homeowner. I didn't help build my home. I imagine that sweat equity piece is kind of a, almost like a, a guarantee of the person moving into this home. I mean, <laughs> they have the, the proverbial skin in the game for their yes. home. And that must be incredibly important. It is very important for the pe- people who are moving into their homes to know that they help build the home they're in. And these are not, you know, again, Habitat for Humanity International began back in the mid-70s. And when homes and buildings costs were quite a bit lower, and frankly, you didn't have the same um, restrictions that you now have in terms of, and they're not really restrictions, but it's meeting codes. You know, when we build a home, all the electrical is done by electrical contractors. Mm -hmm. All the plumbing is done by plumbing contractors. Above the second story, we are hiring contractors because, again, it's a safety issue. So we're trying very, you know, it's not just trying. We are meeting all and exceeding all of the building code standards for these homes. People are not, you're, you're not building a inexpensive home. You're building a quality home. Mm-hmm. It has all the same features as any new, modern, today home built has to have. It has to meet all of those codes. And so this is just an opportunity to move, to build something in somebody's neighborhood, to add families to the neighborhood that are going to contribute to the neighborhoods. And that's really the goal here is. You mentioned neighborhood and certainly that acronym of NIMBY of not in my backyard. I imagine and and, want to hear from you in terms of Habitat for Humanity has such a solid brand. And like like you talked about, you know, and I've I've, I've actually been a volunteer in numerous places with Habitat for Humanity. And and certainly the homes that are built are quite lovely and, and quite fit well with the neighborhood. But I imagine is, is some of the work you need to do to just, to, I think you mentioned this earlier, just to kind of explain to neighbors what's going there, what, yeah. what's going, what, what, what you're building. Yeah. And I think that would be true no matter what was being built, you know, that, that you would, you'd see somebody building a house in, in a low density neighborhood and everybody's always curious of what's going on. Who's going to move in? What's, who's going to be there? What are they spending there? Why are they doing this or why are they doing that? And, um, and that's true in any neighborhood you look at. I think, Yes, Habitat has brand name. We have 
uh, a lot of that going for us. A former president of the United States who's a major, major, yeah. major advocate. Yeah, he's been a major advocate. <laughs> and so, so you have uh, a situation, though, where it's still, when you go now onto a lot, and instead of building just a single house, you're building a duplex, a triplex, a quad. Now you're bringing in, well, you're bringing in more, quite a bit more families, more vehicles, more traffic. And, I mean, that's always a concern, but I think the goal is to is to house people, house them in, in uh, places that, where they can achieve their dreams as anybody has achieved their dreams. And it is a very complicated process. You asked me if I could wave a magic wand over, you know, what, how would I solve? For me, looking at the funding issues, I don't have a solution. I'm hmm. looking for solutions, just as there are many people looking for solutions. What does it look like to build, um, you know, people who have acquired homes or been living in their home for 20, 30 years, who bought the home when the markets were obviously a lot lower, whose income could support that? I mean, you think about it today, you know, a home, even a home that Habitat builds is still going to appraise, you know, three hundred fifty to $400,000, just like any home does. Yeah. And, and trying to keep that affordable without just basically it's it unfortunately i can't say to the habitat homeowners you've won the lottery and you've just received all this great equity in the home and you'll be able to flip it and make a fortune that's not how it works our goal is to help people move into homes stay there for the length of their mortgage and to really achieve financial independence and financial freedom and they do that by having a home that they can live in for a long period of time maybe raise their family and have their kids have a stable home life, be able to complete high school, go on to college. We've actually have families right now in our community who have been in their homes for 30 years in Habitat, whose kids did exactly that. And they have achieved for the families and for the children, financial stability and the, and the opportunity to get college educations and go on and be even more productive in, the, in our society and around the around the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, John Barnum, I think that's a good place to leave it because you painted a picture of of of, of an amazing organization and certainly what you have been able to do and, and what are continuing uh, to do. I guess maybe my last question is this. And I mentioned earlier, I've been a volunteer with Habitat for Humanity. Spend a minute or two just talking about what are the volunteer opportunities here in Central Lane County that that either individuals or companies may be able to get involved in? Well, that's a great, great opportunity because what we'd love for you to do, uh, if you are interested, would be to uh, log on to our website online. We have a volunteer page there. You can just go to habitatlane.org. So it's H-A-B-I-T-A-T-L-A-N-E dot O-R-G. And you'll see a link to our volunteer page. Um, at that point, too, for businesses, we'd love to have businesses who want to do team team days where they come out on site and help with the building. We will be building, like I said, in Fisher Village. For the next few years, we'll have a lot of projects going on there, starting with pouring foundations. Probably uh, in the next month or so, we'll be doing some foundation work. And so that's by the 1st of March. Hopefully, we will be completed on that. Um and then walls will go up again. We'll have, you know, that will be a continuing process for the next probably two years at Fisher Village. 
At the same time, then we hope to launch something in Eugene and begin that project. We have land in Cottage Grove. We hope to begin doing a project down there. So community-wide, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for volunteers and for businesses to step in and help us and just have a lot of fun while you do it. Indeed, indeed. Well, John Barnum, uh, Habitat for Humanity of Central Lane County Executive Director, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. That was our conversation with John Barnum, Executive Director for Central Lane County's Habitat for Humanity. Barnum and his team create opportunities for those who might otherwise be unable to share the dream of home ownership. This has been the Oregon Rainmakers podcast on KLCC. I'm Michael Dunn, your host. Thanks for listening.